Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Brad A. Jones, author of the book Resisting Independence, Popular Loyalism in the Revolutionary British Atlantic. Brad, welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, thanks for being agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Something about myself. Um, so I'm a, I'm an Ohioan by birth. Grew up in Ohio. Uh, lived a couple places across the country. Uh, something interesting, actually, I would add is that I'm, a, I'm the rare American that decided to go to Scotland uh, to do my Ph.D. to study American history. But hopefully, as we talk about the book today, you'll see how that makes sense. I, I consider myself a historian of the British Empire and and the American Revolution, but it's not it's not normal that a, an American heads to to Europe to study the to, to early America. But but so I would say that's something unique about me. It's interesting because that perspective definitely comes across in your book, which is very much about this. Uh, transatlantic relationship. What was it that led you to uh, focus upon that in particular with regards to the American Revolution and the lead up to it? Well, so this goes back years. This this book took many years to write. So I'd have to think back to the very beginning. So I became interested in, actually, my original interest was just in political culture and print culture during the American Revolution. Uh, my, my my advisor in graduate school is this wonderful historian, Simon Newman, who had uh, his first book, he's many, many books out now, but his first book was was on the 1790s around the French Revolution in, in, in the United States. And he looked a lot at sort of uh, po- popular culture and print culture and and and, and how that di- defines sort of political identities and in early America. And so I became fascinated with that topic. I contacted him and then I ended up applying. To, he was at the University of Glasgow. That's how I ended up there in part. And and as we got to talking, I, I became very interested in sort of the loyalist side of the question and, and also just sort of this kind of larger imperial question of like the broader empire and, and, and what loyalism meant in the broader uh, context of the empire. I, and, and you're right. I think being in you're definitely right. Being in Scotland uh, gave me a perspective that I simply I don't think I could have ever have had had I been trained uh, in a in a United a, a graduate program in the United States. Uh, it allowed me to see literally see the revo- American history from a from a broader perspective and a, and a distant perspective. Um, and it helped me to understand the revolution to be a, a larger transatlantic phenomenon. It's not you know it wasn't just limited. To, and I'm not the first to think this, but it, it's it sort of really helped help to clarify those sort of think that that sort of thinking um, once I arrived in Glasgow. I, I like as well, though, that your book also embodies that American perspective of loyalism as being not necessarily uh, you know British subservience, but an effort to assert American rights albeit one that, you know, doesn't go so far as to basically try to walk away from the empire if they're not getting what they are expecting. Exactly. Yeah. So one thing I would say about my understanding of loyalism is that it's not and this often confuses students when I when I lecture on this stuff is that my understanding of loyalism is that it's not actually that different from from the the beliefs espoused by what we call American patriots, or what I, a good loyalist would say, re- rebellious colonists, um, that there was there were similarities that um, and agreements on on ideas of the purpose of government, the nature of those in power, the uh, the fears and beliefs that that, that that these individuals held and and defined them were similar. I mean, you know, and this is sort of gets at one of those kind of root points of my book in that, and, and again, I'm not the first to say this, but I think I'm, uh, I'm one of the first to really explore it in a meaningful way. And that is that the revolution was a civil war, um, a civil war in the sense that it was literally British subjects fighting British subjects. 
Um, but also it was a civil war in terms of like ideologically there was a, it was, you know, it was, it was people with similar views fighting against people with similar views. Um, and so loyalism, um, is certainly definable ideology and belief system and identity. I'm not, I would say that that's true. It is. And I, I can, I'll talk more about that here today, but, but it's also, um, it's, you know, that there wasn't a lot, a great deal separating the two sides. Uh, your choice of communities is a very interesting one because mm-hmm. it's geographically very diverse and it really does seem to run the gamut of the type of communities that existed in the British Atlantic in the 18th century. Why did you choose uh, the four that you did? I mean, what were, what were the four <laughs> communities and what distinguished them in terms of what you were doing for the book? Well, so just for the listeners, I'll tell you that the four communities are uh, New York City, which I chose uh, because, uh, you know, I wanted a, a city within uh, the 13 American colonies. And some of your ears or listeners, sorry, may know that um, the uh, New York City is is controlled by the British Army for for from 1776 to, to the end of the war, 1783. So for most of the war and it becomes sort of the center of loyalist refugees who escape, who are escaping the sort of persecution and patriot community. So, so New York city was chosen as sort of the representative city of, of, of the 13 colonies of loyalism in the 13 colonies. Uh, the other one I chose was Kingston, Jamaica, which, which is uh, Jamaica is the crown jewel of the British empire, the 18th century, the, you know, the, the wealth generated in, in Jamaica from the, from the sugar and, and slave trade, uh, was was great. The, the economy of Jamaica was greater than the 13 America, the, the economies of the 13 American colonies combined. It's an incredibly valuable colony. And in fact, I'll talk about it becomes very important to the to the British uh, army and government late in the war to protect Jamaica uh, from possible attacks. Um, so, so, I, so so I chose Kingston as the is sort of the capital or not the capital, but the sort of major port city and in Jamaica, I chose it for that reason. This sort of significant colony in the Caribbean. Uh, I chose Glasgow because Glasgow, I think, is in Scotland more generally, is really interesting in the 18th century. It's the Scots are relatively new to the empire, having joined in 1707 through the Act of Union um, and the, the joining of the, of, of the governments. Uh, and the Scots are sort of seen by English people throughout most of the 18th century as sort of outsiders. Uh, as un- uh, untrustworthy as uh, as a threat uh, to sort of uh, the the government and society, and so there's a real interesting. But at the same time, Scots actually help Britain build its empire. There are major sort of uh, military leaders and uh, merchants and 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 colonial governors are often Scots. Uh, so the Scots are really interesting as sort of this. Um, this this people uh, and Glasgow being that sort of major port city in, in Scotland is this interesting place in which uh, it's it's incredibly valuable to the British Empire, but the people that inhabit it are sort their their relationship with sort of an imperial identity is somewhat tenuous. Uh, the last place I chose was Halifax, Nova Scotia. So as you had said at the beginning here, I have a nice circle around the North Atlantic. Uh, the Caribbean, uh, uh, Scotland, North America, and then uh, up in sort of British Canada. Uh, Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia, I chose or Halifax, I chose as a it's a very small port city uh, that is that was recently conquered by the British uh, in the early late 1740s, early 1750s as sort of the and it was meant to be uh, in the beginning of the 1750s meant to be this sort of Protestant bulwark against the sort of threat of the the French, uh, the, the French colonists and and present day like Canada at the time, the, the colony of Quebec or the province of Quebec uh, and, and and the Acadian population that was present, the sort of French Acadian population present in Nova Scotia. Uh, it was sort of set up as this kind of both kind of a military depot and also this sort of uh, per, per, kind of a city that was meant to sort of protect, uh, serve as sort of a point of protection for the for sort of the growth of the, the, the North American colonies. Uh, and so and so they're all kind of unique in their own way, uh, but they're also connected. I think of the Atlantic as a as a highway, as a as sort of an 18th century highway, not a barrier. I mean, I think today I mean, I guess we fly over it today, but we don't we don't sort of engage in the Atlantic in the way that I think that 18th century British subjects did is sort of a major thoroughfare connecting 
uh, Europe and mainland Britain, uh, with the Americas, with the Caribbean, uh, and 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 these places connected with one another. I mean, you know, Halijonians, those are people from Halifax, traded regularly uh, with merchants in uh, in Kingston, Jamaica. New Yorkers traded everywhere. Uh, uh, Glaswegians, those are people who live in Glasgow. Uh, they traded throughout North America, the Caribbean. Uh, people immigrated to and from these places. Uh, they're all connected. So so that's more or less why I chose these four communities, though I will add that I think in, in the many years I worked on this project, I think I, uh, I, I wish I got a dollar or a nickel for every time somebody asked me, why didn't I include X city? Uh, there's, <laughs> I've gotten a lot of recommendations over the years, and I appreciate that. I mean, the, the reality is that, and I'll be the first to say it, Dublin would have been a really wonderful place to, to add to this study. Charleston, South Carolina would, would have been really interesting to include. Belfast would have been interesting to include. Uh, an English city like Bristol or Liverpool would have been fascinating to include. Uh, I ultimately decided on those four for this reason. And also, I don't think I could go. It was hard enough trying to sort of write a coherent book around these four cities. If I were to have done five or six, I think it would have been a much longer and messier book. So you, you talk about this, you know, the connections between them, but and yet you in your book, you also detail uh, the uh, tenuousness of some of those connections in, this, in the sense of the distances involved, that while the Atlantic is a highway, you're talking about a highway that takes uh, four weeks, six weeks, uh, sometimes even three months to traverse. And yet it, it, what, what fascinated me when I was reading uh, your early chapters was how even with that distance, even with the, the, the tenuousness of the communication, the, the lack of, of what we would think of as a, 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 a modern day postal service or uh, you know, with with the uh, you know print media being the way that it was, that you do nonetheless uh, identify this this emergent Protestant uh, Whig culture. I was wondering if you would perhaps talk about uh, what were what some of the mechanisms for that, and 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 what characterized this common culture that was developing in this uh, transatlantic environment. Sure. Yeah. So you're right. Yeah. So I, it is. I, I described it as sort of a, a highway, the Atlantic, but it's a very long highway in the 18th century. And, and and you're right. It's the average time span across the Atlantic, say from Glasgow to to North America, would be usually about four weeks, um, depending on the time of year, the weather conditions. And you're right. It could take upwards of three months and getting to someplace like Kingston could take even longer. Um, but I'll, it's also worth pointing out that is to us today, that sounds like a long time to get across. But for people living in the 18th century, you know, that's that's pretty fast compared to, say, you know, a century earlier uh, that that methods of transportation were improving, uh, that that the quickness and the availability of boats traversing the Atlantic was rapidly expanding in the first half of the 18th century. I mean, there's really this. um this revolution in trade that occurs uh, in the first half of the 18th century within the, the, the British Atlantic or the North Atlantic, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of boats are traversing. There are efforts by the the the, the crown or the government to establish, you you'd mentioned sort of like a, a mail service, a, like a, they refer to as a packet boat service to, to, to like this is officially sanctioned government vessels that would be crossing on, on a regular schedule and would be stopping at specific places across the Atlantic to deliver, you know, official government correspondence. And I also talk about how they also delivered newspapers and news uh, to these places. So, so even, you know, even though three, four, five, six weeks sounds like a lot of time to us, and it is a lot of time to us, uh, it is a lot, a lot of time. Uh, it was relatively quick in the minds of an 18th century uh, British subject. Um, and, and so, and so what I talk about then is sort of this um, uh, that's, that's occurring really in the first half of the 18th century as a result of this growth in, in transatlantic trade and, and just general sort of movement of people uh, is that we have this sort of print revolution and, and news revolution that occurs within the British Empire that um, I, much of my research focuses in on newspapers and the growth of the, the printing industry and the ways in which the spread of news helps to begin to draw together uh, the British Atlantic. So you've got this incredibly distant empire. And I think, you know, again, this is why I think Halifax is really useful in this way. This is a pretty isolated in many ways northern small northern port city yet it's intimately connected 
uh, along sort of regional and transatlantic uh, networks of communication and information exchange. Newspapers. Newspapers are coming from Boston and New York regularly to Halifax. Um, and their paper, their paper, they have one paper, is going elsewhere. And printers are exchanging these. And so there was a process in the 18th century when, when newspapers are exchanged. Just to ex- explain this to your listeners who may not be familiar with newspapers then. Newspapers typically came out once a week in the 18th century. Some were, some were twice a week, but it was often just once a week. Uh, and, and the practice of printing a newspaper usually involved uh, a method of what historians call exchanging news. And that is where printers in any given locale would li- they would they would just take news from other newspapers that have arrived in their city so say you li- say you're a printer printer in, in Nova Scotia in the 1760s a guy named Anthony Henry uh, he would be getting newspapers regularly from London from from the American colonies maybe the occasional newspaper coming up from Jamaica or somewhere uh, and he would literally you know pull out the important stories and put them in his paper it's not all that different than you see. I mean, you know, like the AP or something. You'll see this in news, smaller sort of uh, newspapers where that, uh, as as unfortunately the sort of printing industry is taking a hit these days in in the U.S. Uh, today, that uh, they often depend upon news from other larger national publications like maybe the uh, L.A. Times out here or the New York Times or the AP. So they they exchanged news stories, and the same was true of. Henry's newspaper, his Halifax Gazette, when he'd send it places, um, he would send free copies to printers elsewhere, say in the American colonies or over to London, and they would, and he would include in his paper a section on news in Nova Scotia or the New England area, and they could take news from there. And so you've got this, even though it, you know, this is occurring over many weeks and sometimes months, there is an exchange of the same stories. Uh, appearing in all these newspapers. And I, and I begin one of my chapters with this really great essay. Uh, it's my first chapter that's about sort of the explosion of, of the printing industry and newspapers. I begin with this sort of account by this printer from New Hampshire, William Fowle, who, who talks about the value of the printing industry. And he talks about how, like, you know, because of newspapers, people can, he says something like, and I'm paraphrasing here, people be, can begin to see themselves not in the sort of contracted view of their own kind of locale, their own place, their own community, but rather as part members of a larger society, uh, as part of something larger, because they're reading the same news, they're reading the same stories, they're reading about battles being fought, or maybe essays or editorials that are describing. Um, uh, you know, current political events. They're reading about uh, decisions being made in the House of Commons in London. And so there's a shared sort of political culture that's starting to emerge in the in the North Atlantic uh, that is, is separated to, to degree by time and distance, uh, but nonetheless is beginning to, uh, to to draw people together. So so you the, the, the second part of your question had asked me about, so what is the sort of um, what, what kind of culture develops out of this? And so this is kind of the crux of my book, or is that what happens in the 18th century, I argue, is that through the print industry, through these newspapers, there begins to emerge in the, in the first half of the 18th century a shared understanding of what it means to be British, uh, that through the communication of news, be, people begin to sort of define who who. British people begin to find who they are as a people or as a nation or as an empire. Now, I'm not the first to do this. There's a there's a long list of historians, uh, relatively recent, last 20 or 30 years, that have have have, have written quite a bit on this. The if your listeners are interested, you know, one of the formative books in my graduate training that really got me to think about this was Linda Colley's Britons. Uh, which is just a fantastic book and is about this. So, so I would, re- you know, I'm not taking credit for this. This is hers and many other historians' sort of research, but, but it, but it forms the basis of how I approach the revolution. And that is that what emerges in the first half of the 18th century, uh, through the stories told in newspapers, is an understanding of Britain as a free, prosperous, and Protestant empire. And, and, and. And particularly that last point is is crucial to conceptions of what it meant to be British, and that is that they were a Protestant people. Now, that was legally true for the most part in the empire. Uh, in the 18th century, uh, Britain was a Protestant empire. The, the king or queens uh, that ruled uh, during the uh, 18th century were required when they assumed the throne 
to um, to commit to defending the Protestant empire, Protestant religion within the empire. Um, but Protestantism also came came to be understood not just in a religious context, but also in sort of a, a secular context of Britons as producing a free and prosperous people. That Protestantism, they argued, because of this idea that in the Protestant faith, one's ability to achieve salvation was dependent upon their own personal relationship with God. Uh, and, and that required then being literate, being able to read the Bible, and also being able to think for yourself, that this produced a free-thinking population and a, and a more educated population. So, that, so they attributed the freedom and prosperity of their empire to their Protestant beliefs. And they always, 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 always contrasted this with what they described in the 18th century as the tyranny of, of Catholicism. Now, that was in part coming out of the Reformation. This is Protestant Catholicism. This is not a new argument they're making about Catholicism, but, but, but it, it's also in, in part due to the fact that throughout much of the 18th century, in fact, all the way up to the American Revolution, the, the British are at war against their eternal nemesis, uh, France, which is a Catholic empire, and, and their, their good friends, the Spanish, also a Catholic empire for most from 1789 to, to 1760 or sorry, 1689 to 1763. They're almost continually at war against one another. Um, and so and so you could imagine, uh, you know, in, in a nation that's sort of just so defined by this kind of religious thinking and this emphasis on on their Protestant sort of um, um, beliefs and, and the way in which that sort of shapes their society and and their nation. That being at war against Catholicism will only sh- further sharpen those beliefs and accentuate those beliefs, uh, and so and so what emerges then is a really interesting. And this, and so how does it? So how does this appear in newspapers? Well, during these wars, and I focus in my book a little bit on the Seven Years' War, the last of these war that's fought, or listeners may know as the French and Indian War that ends in 1763, is that the, the stories that are that are published in in British Atlantic newspapers describing battles fought against the, the French in the Seven Years' War, or just describing the French enemy, um, describe them, describe the, the, the war, the Seven Years' War, as a battle between goodness and progress and development and Protestantism against the tyranny and absolutism of Catholicism. That the, the Seven Years' War is not just a nation fighting a nation, but it's good versus evil. It's darkness versus light. Uh, and, and, and so this becomes the way in which a really, really distant and diverse empire. I mean, you know, I'll say it again, like, you know, Halifax is a long way away from Kingston and New York's a long way away from, from Glasgow, very distant places and diverse places in terms of their economic and demographic makeups. But all of these people that are Bridges subjects are able you know, um, I had a, a, a second advisor at Glasgow, a wonderful historian of Scotland named Colin Kidd, who has written extensively on sort of Scotland in the 18th century and its place in the empire. Uh, and he always described it to me as sort of thinking of this kind of understanding of what it meant to be British as an umbrella, right? That, that you could have all these regional and local identities that exist within the empire, the diversity of the empire, but, but, but Protestantism or anti-Catholicism this emphasis on uh, a free and, and prosperous Protestant empire is like an umbrella. Everyone could relate to that, whether you were, you know, a, a Dutch reformist in, 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 in New York, a, a Dutch reformist merchant in New York, or a congregationalist in Massachusetts, or a, an Anglican in Virginia, or, or a Scotch Presbyterian down in Kingston, or certainly a Presbyterian over in Glasgow. You, you could all, everyone could sort of it was such a it, it was such a surface level kind of basic kind of definition of of British identity that everyone could find a way to sort of grasp it. And so and it's and this is all they're reading. This is all they're reading. This is the popular prints, like what we think of as like political cartoons today, regularly depicted uh, France and French Catholics as as oppressed and and uneducated and French society as this sort of 
oppressive and arbitrary society. Uh, uh, the books that they read, I mean, the most popular book after the Bible in the, in the first half of the 18th century was John Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is literally a, a collection of stories and sometimes images of the various ways Catholics have tortured Protestants since the Reformation, and and kids were would would be read this book when they when they, you know when they were young and and taught about the sort of horrors of of Catholicism and the French. So so this is the sort of the identity that emerges, and then it brings me to the sort of point of the Revolution. This is what I find fascinating: is that the Revolution, all of a sudden, you've got this crisis in the empire that doesn't involve France. And so, but but it, at the heart of the American Revolution is, is is what I believe to be a question as to what it actually means to be British. What's it mean to be free? And it, a, sorry, sorry that was a long answer. But so, <laughs> that's totally fine. Now, there's there's an aspect of of your description of the uh, flow of information that I thought was really fascinating that I, I had not really fully appreciated until I read your book, which is you described how they uh, would pass along information, how uh, you would have a uh, a, a, a publisher of, of a news of a newsletter in uh, New York City who would get a newspaper from Glasgow, and the the newspaper would be bringing information from from uh, from uh, Britain, and uh, he would he would not just simply uh, sort of duplicate the article or, or copy and paste or anything like that. What he would also do is he would talk about the reaction to it, and then when that uh, when, when his newsletter got got passed on to Halifax, it wasn't just here's the news from Glasgow. It's also and how they're reacting to it in New York, and and you develop that uh, you start to develop that uh, more fully when you're talking about the, what happens initially with the Stamp Act, and I thought that was really fascinating that dynamic, which is it, that it, it's not just that information is flowing from the metropole outwards, it's not just going from Britain to the colonies and then they're just, you know, absorbing it like sponges and then they're just, you know, and, and then information is trickling back in the form of, you know, packet boats and, and, and whatever, you know, provincial stuff. It's that you're also seeing this, 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 uh, re, this call, almost like a call and response, you're getting the reaction to it and how that reaction is also shaping how people are interpreting other aspects of the empire. It's the, it's the point at which you're starting to see some of the differences in terms of, oh, this is how they reacted to it. I don't know if I quite agree with that. <laughs> yeah, that I'm, so, I'm so glad you mentioned that. You're exactly right. Uh, there, there certainly were cases where they just copied existing text, but 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 yet you're exactly right that 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 uh, it's it's and this is a this is an important point that I'm glad you mentioned is that is that there's there's often been this perception that London is the hub of the empire in many ways London is the hub of the empire culturally and politically and so forth, but I do try to sort of push back against that bit and to think of 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 the print culture. Uh, that 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 emerges the transatlantic print, print culture that emerges in the 18th century as as far more decentralized that that news is being exchanged but it's also being developed and and responded to as it moves from place to place uh, and so in that and and out of that I mean so I guess maybe a way to sort of describe what that all means then is to think of like newspapers not just simply as is carrying the same news across the empire but as sort of a conversation unfolding. As news travels across the empire, and that conversation develops depending on you know depending on where that news lands and how people responded to there, and so that both that's interesting I think because it reveals it reveals how London isn't the center in terms of defining a transatlantic British political culture that it's not just London writers dictating how people are to understand events it's far more complicated than that. Uh, but it's also helpful to to understand that because then you start to sort of better understand. And you're right; I get into this with the Stamp Act crisis that um, that uh, the way in which the conversation changes in newspapers reveals a great deal about the the significance of the local political culture of that place. Right? That the how how when a story arrives and how the the writers within that particular city when this when the news of a, say an event arrives how they uh, capture it or respond to it in their own newspapers can reveal a great deal about how that place is thinking about that particular event. And they could actually, as I, as I talked about, I think in that first chapter with that one story is that, uh, with the stamp act news of the stamp act, uh, spreading is that, um, is that the story can change. The story can change depending on, uh, the meaning of the story, the, the value of the story changes, uh, based upon, the, the particular local political culture that it that it arrives in. So um, so London is not the sort of I'm definitely pushing against this idea that London is sort of dictates a, a national or imperial political culture. I think it's far from that. 
And it's also important when you get to those chapters that you're talking about, uh, where you're basically how the divergence emerges, because there is this question that 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 lingers throughout that part of your book, which is why is it that it's only the thirteen colonies that rebel? It's something that we we tend to miss when we're when we talk about it from a, a predominantly or exclusively American perspective. The Stamp Act didn't wasn't just applied to. You know, from from Massachusetts down to uh, Georgia, it was also applied in Nova Scotia. It was also applied in Jamaica, and yet, and and you, as you point out, that you know they had a very similar reaction of you know our rights are being trampled upon. They had that similar outrage, but as you as you demonstrate, I mean, they they never crossed that line into saying you know you know grab your powder, grab your gun, and 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 and, and we're gonna you know. Uh, challenge British rule, and and I thought that divergence was fascinating, and how much of it was dependent upon how places in you know the the, the distinctions that existed, you know, in Kingston, in Halifax, in Glasgow, and, and how those distinctions ultimately helped to help contribute to that uh, that different reaction where it's like we're against this, but you know, <laughs> you know hold, hold back just a moment here. We're not we're yeah. not going to go that far on it. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, uh, again, there's a there's a wonderful book, one of the more influential historians of my sort of professional career on uh, Andrew O'Shaughnessy wrote this really book, good, great book called it, the, An Empire Divided, which is on the revolution in the Caribbean. And it's it it's 20 plus years old now and remains the sort of definitive study of the, the Caribbean. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And I think he begins the book by saying in 1776, only half of Britain's 26 colonies rebelled. <laughs> uh, and, so, and so it was just a great way to start a book. Uh, and, and, and it's, you know, most of those colleagues that didn't rebel on the Caribbean. So it's perfect for his book. Um, but, but yeah, so, I mean, so the stamp act crisis, you're right. Like I, um, you know, uh, are the four places uh, that I, that I'm looking at the four cities I'm looking at in terms of the stamp act crisis, uh, uh, only, only New York resists the, the stamp act, Nova Scotians or Halogenians, people in Halifax, they pay the stamp act, the stamp tax, sorry, uh, Kingston's. Kingstonians, Kingstons, um, they pay the stamp tax. Obviously, in Glasgow, in Glasgow, they had been paying a stamp tax since I think 1712 or something like that. There had been a a, a similar tax in Scotland uh, that they had already been paying, so they had been paying a stamp tax. So, so you know, when we think of the Stamp Act, we often think of the Stamp Act crisis. We often think of the 13. We only think of the 13 colonies, and we only and we think largely of a a sort of a unified resistance. To it, it uh, that uh, you know, often when I teach it, I always say, you know, it's 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 the Stamp Act is is goes into effect November first, seventeen sixty five. It's repealed, I think. What is it, February eighteenth, seventeen sixty six? So it's in effect for four months, and it never, um, not a single uh, place in the thirteen American colonies pays the tax. They resist it. But that's not true elsewhere. That's not true elsewhere. And so why is that? Why is that? I mean, are they any less, you know, are Halogenians or Kingstonians any less uh, committed to defending their liberty or their freedom? Is this just like a uniquely American thing? I think this sort of exceptional attitude that we often have about our history. Uh, I think it's more complicated than that. I think it has to do a lot with local uh, political and, and economic conditions in these places, like for for Halifax, really the story of Halifax and the Stamp Act crisis and really the revolution is that the people of Halifax are largely uh, committed uh, to defending their liberty and uh, adamantly opposed to these uh, what they believe to be these these unfair and and illegal or un- unconstitutional uh, pieces of legislation. But they live in a city that's uh, largely inhabited by British soldiers, and it's controlled in in pretty aggressive ways by a political and an economic elite that um, that squash. I mean, they crush any attempts by locals. To oppose British imperial policies, um, and so you, you know, and so this, you know, Halifax is often, or Nova Scotians are often thought of during the Revolution as sort of either uninterested in the events going down there, like they don't really make a stand, or they're a largely loyal colony because they never do rebel. My take is the exact opposite. That Nova Scotians, by and large, and particularly Halogenians, by and large, wanted to rebel. Uh, they were held in check by an oppress by an oppressive government. And, and military establishment. Uh, and, 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 and more or less the same is true, at least early on in Jamaica and Kingston. Uh, but it's uh, the difference there is that, you know, um, 
at the time in, in, in 1765, roughly speaking, there's somewhere between 12 and, say, 15,000 white uh, British colonists living in, in all of Jamaica and about 5,000 living in Kingston. Uh, and the and on that island, and and there are about 200,000 uh, enslaved Africans. And so they're massively outnumbered by their slaves. They're fearful of slave revolts. They're fearful of any sort of political crisis uh, providing opportunities for slaves to revolt. They're appreciative of the presence of the British military, soldiers and, and seamen there to protect them. Um, and so though they pay the tax in part, I argue, uh, because, you know, political riots and rebellion tend to provide opportunities for for uh, slave revolts and slave rebellions, uh, which which worries them. So here they are is sort of committed. Committed to this sort of idea of an empire that's broad and free and prosperous uh, and 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 people that were these white colonists in, in Kingston um, and committed to these values and, and perceive of the tax as oppressive. And I talk about this in the chapter. They 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 write in their newspapers and stories are carried elsewhere that white Jamaicans or white Kingstonians are do not like the Stamp Act. They try to attack the stamp distributor there. Um, there are, you know, there are, you know, there are sent, there's a, there's certainly a sense that they're not happy, but they don't, they don't quite get to the level of, of angry resistance or violent resistance you see in places like New York, uh, in part because of their local, uh, uh, political and economic culture. So what you have then in your uh, book is you have this moment at which in, in effect, the colonies are united to a point in their opposition to the Stamp Act. But then what happens in the uh, in the roughly decade that follows is that growing divergence that you describe. And you talk about this notion of a of a British common cause. And I was wondering if you could perhaps you know, I- I- explain what, what's going on there with in, in terms of the distinctions between these regions. That's good. OK, yes. Yeah, so so you're right. So so one thing I the, the conclusion I come to about the Stamp Act, the Stamp Act is that British subjects across the Atlantic despised it. Scots saw it as an oppressive piece of the legislation. Everywhere they saw it as this. The, 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 the division that starts to emerge first in the Stamp Act crisis and then accelerates in the 1760s and the early 1770s is not so much over the, the constitutionality of various pieces of legislation, uh, the, the, you know, over ideas of mercantilism or, 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 or parliamentary sovereignty or these sort of larger questions that we often think of when we think of like the causes of the American Revolution. The fact of the matter is that most loyal Britons didn't like the Stamp Act. They didn't like the Townsend duties. They certainly weren't fans of things like the Boston Massacre or, or, uh, or, or you know, the, maybe the Tea Act gets a little more complicated. But what the, the division starts that, that really starts to emerge in the British Atlantic is over methods of resistance. And the language of loyalism that starts to develop that I eventually call in, in that emerges by 1774, 75, which I refer to as sort of the British common cause. This is the moment where, where sides are being taken and there's a, a conflict emerging of a, a, a violent conflict is sort of on the on the foyer is that um, is that the loyalism comes to sort of depend upon this notion that or is defined by this notion that one monarchy is good. Monarchy is good and legal constituted government law and order and ordered a socially ordered and politically ordered society is good and is the surest way to protect our liberty. So they're not questioning. I mean, so they they could say that a loyalist and still have a problem with the kinds of policies or legislation that parliament's passing. Uh, but what they're saying is uh, violent riots um, extra legal committees eventually, you know, boy, when the boy, when, when, when American colonists begin to boycott British goods, uh, this begins in the Stamp Act crisis, but really accelerates in the seven, late 1760s in response to the Townsend duties. And then again in 1773 in response to the T Act, uh, these aggressive boycotts, uh, to, to enforce these, all these kind of local committees start to form, uh, tasked with sort of controlling the economy of their local community. Uh, and they're not legal. 
they're not i mean this is obvious i think to most historians and and, and most people that they aren't legal but for me it's like well what does that mean then like what's that mean to a loyalist right that they're not these aren't legal groups these aren't they weren't voted into office these aren't representative of the representatives of the community in, in most cases um why do they all of a sudden have the right to dictate trade within our communities um to dictate violence towards people that oppose them. Um, and this becomes the sort of dividing point. So loyalism or this British common cause that emerges at the start of the war in 1775 is committed to, again, monarchy, but also this idea that the surest way to remain a free people, to protect our liberty, is to defend constitutional government. That lawless, you know, or extra-legal crowds and committees and associations, those are those are far more dangerous in the eyes of loyal British subjects than than, you know, Parliament or or what have you. And so, I mean, there's one loyalist that eventually I think it's 75, a loyalist, I think in Philadelphia says something like, um, I'd rather be ruled by one tyrant several thousand miles away than several thousand tyrants a mile away. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, that, 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 uh, and this becomes, I mean, it's, so it, you see it, you see it a bit in the stamp act crisis that the, the division that occurs in the empire is not over the, they all agree that, that the legislation is awful, but when the colonists start to riot and attack stamp distributors, like Scots start to say, well, wait a sec. Okay. That's, you know, we don't think it's a good piece of legislation, but that doesn't mean you get to burn burn things and just people tear people's houses down and 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 it escalates in the 1760s with the Townsend duties, and then it really takes off when the first Continental Congress meets in 1774, fall of 74, and and, and creates what's called the Continental Association, which is this really aggressive colonial wide boycott of all British goods uh, in response to the coercive acts. Um, and that boycott to enforce it in the in the language of the Continental Association, Congress writes to enforce this. Every town, village, and city in in, in the colonies should establish a committee uh, to 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 make sure that people abide by this boycott. And so all of a sudden, you know, in the winter of seventy, you know, from November to 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 April seven, never November seventy four to April seventy five, throughout all of a sudden throughout the the, the American colonies. All of a sudden, all these men start to form these committees. In some cases, they don't really get a vote. They don't take a vote. They they hold like an outdoor gathering and, and do a vote. But a lot of people don't show up to this. And so all of a sudden and then all of a sudden they just start going door to door telling people they have to sign this association, agree to this boycott and 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 not do business with Britain. And this is going to this is going to destroy people economically. This could ruin families. And 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 to what power right do these people have to do this? And so. This is when loyalism really emerges, or, or loyalists, I should say, uh, not just in the 13 colonies, but across the empire. Loyalism, beginning in, in the winter of 74, 75, comes to mean a defense of legal government and order, uh, opposed to sort of what they see as the, the approaching of sort of anarchy and, and or, you know, which this, it meant the same thing as republicanism, uh, which they thought of as anarchy as sort of destructive to the to the social and political order of society and thus a threat to our freedom. It, it, and yet it is largely a theoretical issue or, 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 or a, uh, you know, a political issue until you get to the mid 1770s. Then you have then you cross this threshold where you're talking about this being a point of war. I thought that was really fascinating how they, they have this paradigm of, of thinking of the enemy as being French. Uh, royalist, Catholic, and how all of a sudden they're now fighting people who, you know, they, they definitely have this disagreement, but they're still part of this Protestant Whiggish culture and they're engaged in this fascinating effort to wrestle with it. That, that as you then, and I, I really was, I really loved how, how you inserted that, how it becomes a lot easier once the Continental Congress aligns, has the alliance with France, and then all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier to, to you know, kind of revert back to the old paradigm and say, oh, it's the, it's the damn French, you know, Catholics again. Yeah, well, exactly it. Yeah, so, the, yeah, so, right. So from 1765 until 1774, like I said, you know, they're trying to, British subjects are trying to respond to these, like, repeated crises in their empire without 
and it, which are which I describe, but all of these are sort of an attack or, or not an attack, sorry, the, the, you know, all the various sort of legislative crises and the other crises that occur in local communities that I talk about uh, in each of these places are forcing subjects to think about what it means to be British. And the challenge here is that it's the bad things that are happening to them aren't being aren't being caused by their traditional enemies. It's not Catholics. Now, as I talk about in the book, they try often to like uh, they use like cat, like anti-Catholic language to describe the oppression they're feeling from, say, Parliament or the government, um, which I argue is just because they're trying to sort of make it familiar, understandable. Like, how do you? And, and it just, if anything, it just reveals how confusing things are. Um, but what, what happens at the start of the war? I mean, I always do this when I teach this, sub, the start of the war, uh, I think it's a really shocking way for students. It, it's certainly very shocking for students, but, but it also really helps them immediately to understand this as a civil war. And I always say, I always say, I always pick students in class and I say, you know, okay, here we are in the spring of 75. Like we've been arguing for, for weeks now in this class about what's going on in the empire and who's right and who's wrong. And, and what's justifiable, what's not justifiable. But here we are in the spring of, 70, spring of 1775, and you have to now decide that you're willing to pick up a gun and kill your neighbor, right? I mean, this happens in the, the American War for Independence. Like, neighbors fight neighbors. Families are divided. Uh, it's, a, it's a civil war. And so how do you get to that point? How do you get when they're when they're fellow Protestant British subjects, right? That they that, that the point I keep making here is that they largely agreed on most things. How do you make them an enemy? How do you make somebody an enemy worth like violently fighting against? Uh, and this is all very, very shocking to students. But 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 part of that is, I mean, the point I make for the Americans and the, the American cause is so much more successful at the start of the war and so much more unifying that the American common cause, because it's initially rooted in 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 popular popular reaction to the Quebec Act which was a piece of legislation passed in 1774 that in effect really had nothing to do with the American colonies, the 13 American colonies. Um, but it basically, uh, there did several things, but one thing it did is it, the, the French, uh, sorry, the, the province of Quebec, which is sort of lower Canada today had been taken by the British in the seven years war, but it was still inhabited by about 40,000 French speaking Catholics who are now are British subjects. And so the, Government in London was trying to figure out what to do with them. They worried that these people might rebel. They're French Catholics. They don't like us. Uh, and so they legalized Catholicism in 1774 in Quebec. And the American colonists, or at least the ones that will eventually join the Patriot cause, and the, and the members of the Continental Congress talk a lot about this in their public addresses in 1774, believe that the Quebec Act is a signal, one, that their government has turned into like crypto-Catholics. <laughs> they begin to argue that the king is some sort of secret Catholic and he's out to uh, oppress us all. Stories circulate that they that the purpose of the Quebec Act was to arm these 40,000 French Catholics in Canada to descend on the Protestant American colonies and kill men, women and children. And a lot of that seems absurd unless you go back to the Seven Years War and look at what newspapers were printing about the French during the Seven Years War in Canada. They were saying the same thing. The same kinds of stories, but now it's our own king doing this, and so it becomes very easy now to make an enemy out of a, a out of your neighbor because if he's still going around, you know, toasting George the Third, he's now toasting a king who has sided with French Catholics, and but but loyalism doesn't have that, or loyalists don't have that. They're understanding their cause, they're they're understanding what it means to be British, is just stuck in this sort of understanding of a defense of monarchy and constituted or legal government and a defense of political and social order. Um, but, but they don't, they're absent sort of a meaning. In fact, what they really say in the first years of the war is the American colonists are just, they're being duped. They're not actually bad people. They're, they're not worth fighting. They're there. And, and this is Glasgow in the first half of the first years of the war, Glaswegians largely don't support the crown in the war. They don't send a loyalty address to the king when the war starts in 1775, one of the few places that don't. They're fearful of losing their trade. I mean, a point I make actually in 1775 is that uh, in 1775, it's very possible that Nova Scotia and Jamaica are going to join the rebellion. And, and, and Scots are mainly keeping quiet about it. There's no, even though there's a British common cause emerging, it's not particularly, you know, it's not particularly helpful in terms of fighting a war. Um, and so, and so 
the first years of the war, they, they sort of it's a cause without an enemy, I guess, is a way to say it. Um, but as you said, that changes in 1778 when France joins the war. And it's almost like you can I mean, if you read British newspapers in the spring of 1778, there's almost like a collective exhale. Like, uh, <laughs> wow, we, 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 we survived. Like, OK, we can do this. We can we, we we they're back like France is back in the war. We can make sense of this. Right. And we can, and, and, and importantly, right, they can now argue loyalists or loyal British subjects, whether they're in Scotland, Jamaica, Nova Scotia or New York, they can now argue that they're that they're the good guys, that they're on the good side. You know, in a in a in a war that had been that had, you know, that, that when in 1776, Jefferson, you know, declared independence against the crown. He did so by making the crown out to be not British anymore. Right. I mean, he attacked George III as effectively having abandoned all of the values that defined this free, prosperous and Protestant empire that, you know, our Declaration of Independence is like a breakup letter. And what Jefferson's saying is that it's not us. It's you, King. We're still like good Protestant subjects here. You're the one that's like, you know, legalizing Catholicism in Quebec and arming slaves and Indians and committing war against us and, 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 and approving all these bad pieces of arbitrary pieces of legislation. And so, you know, how does a loyalist say that we're, we're fighting for freedom here? We're on the good side. We're defending liberty. It's really hard to do. But when Congress signs a formal alliance with France, it's very easy now. It's very easy now because what they start to say then in, in, in newspapers, stories that circulate amongst these in amongst these four communities uh editorials essays what have you is they start to say oh right this makes sense now the all those extra legal committees and association this illegal congress that was formed all the uh various oppressive arbitrary measures that they've enacted against loyal subjects in the colonies uh we we never could make sense why they were doing that because we know that they're Protestant British subjects, but now they've allied with France. It's because, right, they're not actually Protestant British subjects. They're, <laughs> they're friends with the French. And this really fascinating um, uh, like discourse sort of emerges in the, in the final years of the war where uh, loyal subjects across the empire are convinced – they're convinced that Congress is beholden – to the king of France, that the, that the French now are going to colonize the 13 colonies. This is why I argue Benedict Arnold defects in 1780. Uh, it's not so much of, of, of is, and I'm not the first to say this, but but I, I, I think I'm saying it more forcefully or contextualizing it better than others have. But but he's not doing it because he's bitter that he didn't get promoted or or, or better pay. He's doing it because he he's looking around. He says, he actually says, then and he says later in life that, you know, in 1778, um, Congress allied with France and I thought I was fighting to defend our British freedoms. I thought the whole point of this war was to 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 to, 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 def to defend our freedoms as British subjects against the oppressive measures of Parliament and the king. And now Congress has turned and, and made friends with Catholic France. And I can't stand for that. Um and so they become convinced that the war is really just now. I mean, the war becomes now not the Americans actually become peripheral figures, the rebellious Americans in the war after 1778. Britain, Britain, beginning in 1778, is fighting France. And, and then in 79, Spain joins. They're fighting Spain. The colonies now become sort of the pawns in all of this. Like, who's going to get all these? It's either going to be the French and Spanish or Britain. Uh, they're not going to be free. Um, British, British people become convinced of. Um, and so it's a very different war. It, it, it changes dramatically. They're not, you know, there's no conversations of taxation or trade policies or any of that stuff that, that we think so defined our revolution. Uh, the, the narrative of the war after 1778 is about Protestant Britain fighting against French Catholic tyranny. And then, of and, course, but I was about to say that, that, but then that narrative gets upended when, in you know, out of you know concerns about you know Catholics elsewhere in the British Empire turning to France, you pass the Catholic Relief Acts in 1780, and then all of a sudden you have Protestants in London and elsewhere who are upset and even in some cases rioting because they see that they see the, the 
the, the Catholic enemy that they've in effect been, you know, spent generations uh, riled up against now all of a sudden, uh, you know, getting relief and, 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 and possibly, you know, having that first step towards, you know, do- the dominance they've long feared. Exactly. Yeah. So this this is the final chapter of the book and in, in which I look at sort of the impact of both this kind of reemergence of this kind of classic Protestant British uh, language of, of of loyalty, this sort of commitment to Protestantism and fear of Catholicism, Catholicism and how that plays out sort of in the final years of the war. And and you're right. In 1778, the French, uh, sorry, the British government decides uh, to 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 pass a series of Catholic relief bills for English, Scottish, and Irish Catholics, um, and the intention was just because they needed more soldiers now that they're fighting this much larger war, uh, and they were hoping to draw from the ranks of of Catholics in Scotland, Ireland, and England. Uh, they actually, sorry, they don't pass the Scotch and Irish ones initially. They pass the English one, and and mainland Brits freak out. They freak out. Scots in particular. When they get news of the Scottish bills, I talk about Glaswegians, they lose their mind, I would say. I mean, they well, that's not fair. I mean, that's actually I mean, there there's a reason they act like they do, because they are they have been reared in a political and religious culture where Catholicism was not just a a bad religion, but it was a threat to their very existence as a free and prosperous people. Um, and that they all but they also were living in a moment where you know, at that point in 1778, they're three years into a war and a decade and a half into a crisis or a conflict that had t- entirely unraveled the empire's understanding of what it meant to be British. And they had finally come to grips as to why they were fighting uh, and why this war was happening. It was a war against the spread of Catholicism into North America. <laughs> the French are now involved. And so for their government to do this, to all of a sudden relieve Catholic was seemed incomprehensible. Uh, and and they and they there are riots in Glasgow. Um, there are riots in Edinburgh. Uh, there is a petitioning drive that is beyond what anything that had ever happened in Scotland in the 18th century since they had joined the unions in, in 1707. Uh, Scots turned out in greater numbers and were ready to revolt, uh, I argue, uh, if 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 the government passed this relief bill. Now, the government ultimately in January 1779 decides not to. Wisely, Parliament takes it off the table because I do believe that there would have been maybe not a full scale rebellion, but were, there would have been massive riots. But of course, they don't repeal the English one. And uh, a Scottish member of Parliament, Lord George Gordon, uh, had formed a Protestant association, it was called, uh, to sort of organize resistance to the to the relief bill in England. Uh, and in 1780, he decides to submit the petition uh, signed by tens of thousands of people, decides to submit it to Parliament uh, with, a, with a group of about 40,000 people at his back. Uh, and what happens then is they march to Parliament as it descends into a riot that lasts five days and and I argue in the book, I mean, I think of the Gordon riots uh, in June of 1780 as as a battle of the American war for independence. It's predicated upon uh, the sort of political and uh, beliefs, uh, the political crises of the moment. It's it's part it's in part response, a response to the ongoing war in America. Um, it's every bit a part of the conflict and in, in the broader crisis or uh, that had sort of enveloped the empire for the previous two decades. And and the, and the end of that five-day writing, I think, well, I forget the exact numbers, but I want to say five or 600 people die and that, perhaps more. And though battle, uh, battle deaths are pretty poorly recorded in the 18th century, the best I could tell is that it's certainly one of the top five, if not top three, most deadly battles fought in the American War for Independence. More people die in the Gordon riots than virtually any, any land battle fought in the American War for Independence. Um, there are a couple naval battles fought that there are a greater number of casualties. But uh, and so and this is all this is all part of a culture within the British Empire, a Protestant political culture um, that had been reinvigorated uh, after suffering for a decade and a half of being just, you know, I sort of beat down by by these sort of rebellious Americans and then revived in 1778 by the arrival of France into the war. Uh, and it led to this sort of massive domestic turmoil uh, within Scotland and across mainland Britain. 
and I think you you see that uh, you know that that you know play out at the end where you're talking about the Battle of the Saints, and you have that excellent uh, description at the at the end of it uh, of, of in your in your conclusion about how it's you know it, it's where you see these spontaneous celebrations. Uh, I think for for American listeners to think of it the way the, the way that we honor the Battle of New Orleans as being sort of the climax of the American Rev- of the of the War of eighteen twelve, even though the war was already over. The same thing was true for the American Revolution. You know, independence was was given at this point, but you have this you know crushing defeat of the of the French fleet, as you describe it, the 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 that you know eclipsed only by Trafalgar in terms of the the great British French conflict, and how you you see that that reaffirmation of that of that British loyalty. With the the statue that exists to this day in Kingston of of you know celebrating Rodney for this great triumph over the French, where we finally you know see where the British stuck it to them yet again. Yeah, I think I, it's not in the book, but I if I remember right, there's a Philadelphia newspaper uh, after so the Battle of Saints happens about six months after Yorktown. Uh, the Americans, I think, are still drunk from, from celebrating <laughs> Yorktown, and 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 peace negotiations are beginning in the spring of 1782. The war is effectively over. It will go on a little longer, but but the Parliament's made it clear that they're ready to negotiate. The government's ready to negotiate for an end of the war. Uh, and then the Brit and, and so in the midst of all this, what's France try to do? They try to capture Jamaica, like because that's ultimately what the, you know that's the crown jewel of the empire. And and this this great you know great and sort of really interesting British admiral, naval admiral George Bridges Rodney, uh, intercepts the French fleet at the Battle of Saints, and not only does he defeat them, but he actually captures their their lead vessel and their commander, the Admiral de Grasse. Uh, Marquis de Grasse and brings it like sails his boat the Villa de Paris into Kingston uh, and imprisons this guy. I mean, it's, you know, this is just a, I mean, he wins and also destroys the French fleet. Uh, so he secures Jamaica that day and for, for, you know, years forward uh, in this victory. And there's a Philadelphia. So there's widespread, as you said, there's widespread celebrations. It's fascinating. I, you know, I say that like the battle of saints for, from the loyalist perspective is the most important battle of the entire American war for independence. And yet it occurred after Yorktown and not in the American colonies. So, so it tells you something about how loyal subjects perceived of the, the sort of geographic reach and ideological reach of the, the American revolution and war for independence. But there's a, amidst these celebrations, there's a, I, I remember there's a, there's an article in a Patriot newspaper in Philadelphia where the writer says, you know, he's re- responding to reports of these celebrations of Rodney's victory. And he writes something like, do they, do they know they've lost the war? <laughs> like, are, they, are, these, are these people aware that they've actually lost the war? Like they couldn't understand why are these people so excited about this meaningless battle down in Jamaica? But it maybe it sort of emphasized, you know, it exemplified sort of the divide that had emerged uh, between the two after France joins the war. That for loyal subjects, you know, they, 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 their understanding of the war was that they were fighting France. And, and Rodney's victory meant that they had won. They had won the war against France. And they remained convinced in the immediate aftermath of the war. Loyal subjects, whether they were in New York or Halifax or Glasgow or Kingston, they remain convinced in the in the in the final days of the war and in, in, and even in its immediate aftermath that France was going to colonize the North America that the, the thirteen colonies would never be free, uh, even in getting their independence, uh, they would soon fall under the power of the French crown, uh, and so it was sort of like you know we lost them but they're not us anymore. Uh, I mean I think part of the one of the arguments I try to make is why loyal subjects don't ultimately. They don't appear to lose a lot. Well, loyal colonists do get very upset because many of them are dispossessed of their property and been violently attacked by patriot crowds and committees and so forth. They are certainly angry and revengeful. But loyal subjects elsewhere don't largely care about the loss of these 13 colonies, in part because, as I said, they they think that they're just going to become colonies of France. But also, I think after the French alliance in 1778, uh, a lot of – at least in the sort of print culture – the narrative is that these um, that Congress and its supporters, they're not British subjects. They're not they're not us. They're not us anymore. They somehow have have changed. They've become French. They've become Catholic and they're they're not like us anymore. So we haven't lost something. We want, you know, to lose something means you wanted it. and We don't want them <laughs> uh, in the same way in 1774, 75. The patriots do this to to, to the king and parliament. They're able to begin to say that they're not us either. Uh, and we can separate. So, 
I think it just sort of gets at the sort of civil war again, the 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 the, the, the thinking of the revolution as a civil war, and that these these two sides have to sort of make sense as to why they're not, you know, they're not part of the same empire anymore, and they're not the same people. And that uh, France's involvement has a lot to do with it on the on the loyal side. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, <laughs> could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, so on uh, now I'm. Uh, it's actually a project that's sort of coming out of uh, a, a bit that I talk about in in the book, and that is I'm looking at the uh, the first couple years of the war, seventy five to seventy seven, um, before the French alliance. Actually, one of the, one of the first things that the Second Continental Congress does in the summer of seventy five is they establish a secret committee. Uh, tasked in part with uh, building some kind of at least informal alliance with France. Uh, now, the famous, the most famous example of this is they send Silas Dean, a Connecticut member of uh, of the Congress, over to France to actually begin to sort of negotiate possible alliances. But they also send a guy named William Bingham down to the French uh, Caribbean colony of Martinique, uh, and he's tasked with. Uh, acquiring French weapons and ammunition to to help out Washington's Continental Army because the Americans have no weapons and ammunition. They don't have any gunpowder. They can't produce gunpowder in the colonies. And so they need to acquire it somewhere else. And so Bingham goes down in 75. And for the next two years, he's basically given a stack of, of, of letters of mark to commission anyone that wants to be a privateer for the American cause uh, to effectively raid British ships bring the cargoes into Martinique and sell those cargoes in exchange for French weapons and ammunition. And he does very well with this. And so I'm kind of, I'm interested in looking at that. One thing he does quite extensively is uh, raid British slave ships. And so I've been able in my initial research to find that uh, just in this two year, about a two year period, 75 to 77 uh, or early 77, uh, I've found upwards of 4,000 slaves that are captured and sold to French merchants in Martinique in exchange for French weapons and ammunition for uh, Washington's army. Uh, and so I'm interested in sort of figuring out what that story is and what that looks, you know, where I, I don't know where to take it yet, but I think it's a fascinating uh, sort of uh, thought that our army in the first years of the war is being funded by this, this raiding operation in the Caribbean. It sounds like a fascinating uh, mm. uh, subject. I hope. I hope. I'm very, <laughs> very, very early stages, but yes, I'm, I'm excited by it. Well, Brad Jones, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Great. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Great conversation.